Good morning, Village Church. Good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm lead pastor here at the church. Most weeks I get the privilege to open up God's Word. So if you would do me a huge favor, open up your Bibles, digital, digital or paper, Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3. Uh, so personal question, do you, do you ever feel like the people around you don't quite change as fast as you would like them to change? <laughs> yeah. Like your spouse, right? Don't give me an amen on that one, otherwise you're going to get in trouble on that one. Um, so uh, many, many months ago, I, I told you a true story about uh, one of the greatest frustrations I have with my wife. And the frustration is that uh, she, has, she, she had seemingly an inability to screw on a lid. You might remember this illustration. So I'd go to the shower regularly, and I'd shake the orange juice, go all over me. And I, I don't know why, whenever I take something out of the fridge, I shake it. Uh, I guess that's like my problem, apparently, because... So anyways, this is happening over and over again. It, it could be anything. It could be like a, um, a toothbrush, or not tooth, toothpaste lid. If, you do, if it screws on, it's not going to be on all the way. It's going to basically not be on, right? But I got to say, I got up, and I, I talked about that up front, and I was sitting there this morning, and I cannot remember the last time she has le left a lid unscrewed. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up to my wife, and I want you to say, hey, praise Jesus. <laughs> Your marriage is preserved. Uh, just go up to her. She's, she's, she is going to be strolling here in a little bit. Go up to her and just be like, hey, great job. Hey, so proud of you. Don't tell her why. And then we're just going to keep her on her toes for the entire day. Um, so real, real heart change is actually possible. Um, but I, I, honestly, I, as I work with people, as I look at my own heart, I, I think to myself, why is change so hard? With my kids, I feel like I have a lot of control over their change in a way. They seem to change really a lot more quickly than myself or my wife or the majority of adults that I work with. And there's something about young kids that they're just a lot more malleable. But here's just a little rule. Uh, as you get older, it's harder to change, right? Like you like things just so. You like things just the way they are. Uh, and I think change is actually one of the most difficult things. I want to tell you why. Because there are a few components to actual, real, long-lasting heart change. Uh, one of them starts in your head, the way you think, what you believe about reality. And I want you to think about this just for a moment, okay? You got somebody, person A, you might even be in this room, okay? And uh, you are not a Christian. You do not believe in Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, obviously your desire is that they would become a Christian. But for you to become a Christian, a number of things have to change in your head. What you believe about God, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about truth, what you believe about reality, what you believe about the spiritual realm. There are all of these thoughts that if you're going to actually change your faith and come to Jesus Christ, it requires a very massive change of your head, how you think and how you process. Not just that. Uh, it also uh, requires somebody to change is like what you do, like how you live. Uh, now, this is the one part of change I do feel like I have in my life the most control over. But not a lot. You ever find yourself doing the things that you don't want to do? I feel like I'm the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, right? Um, there's like, I find myself like, why am I doing this? I, I do not need to choose this, right? But then there is what you feel. How many of you have been able to just change your hormones and your chemicals in your body just on a dime, right? And there are so many people, it's like, I want to change, but our feelings, how we feel about stuff, our hormones, the chemicals going on inside of us, often determine what we do and how we think. Then there's this whole other category of change, which is your heart. This is like the domain of God. And, and the heart is the most frustrating for me because everywhere I go, there I am. And no matter how much I try to change my behavior or change my mind or change my emotions, my heart just always catches up to me. I mean, change is really, really difficult. This is why when people 
come to Jesus, come to faith in Jesus later in life, as we said last week, I am so thrilled because it is a true miracle for somebody in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s, or 90s to change the way they think, to have their perspective on reality change, to have their heart transformed, to watch their actual decisions in their life begin to conform to the Word of God. Like, this is a big deal. Change is hard. And in Daniel chapter 2, we met King Nebuchadnezzar. He is an evil dictator, despot, violent. He is the most powerful man in the entire world. And this man, God, is running after him. He is pursuing him. And God is seeking to change this man, his head, his heart, his emotions, and his behavior. Like, God is on a relentless pursuit in Daniel chapter 2, 3, and 4. Now, if there's anybody in the world that you would think is unsavable, it would be King Nebuchadnezzar, hands down. What I think of King Nebuchadnezzar is this. Kim Jong-un, right? You think of insecure, overcompensating, dictator, evil, malicious, all these other things, right? When I think of King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the first guy that comes into my brain. Now, if you were to say to me, Michael, do you believe that that Kim Jong-un is ever going to trust in Jesus? Is he ever going to change his worldview, change his heart, have his uh, attitude changed towards, we'll say, oh, everything? And immediately, honestly, in the flesh, I'm like, there's no chance Kim Jong-un is going to trust in Jesus Christ, repent, and change his entire life. And yet we open up Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 3, and Daniel chapter 4. Here's what we find. That even the most wicked and the most powerful despots in the world, God has the authority and the ability to transform their lives. And sometimes the more evil and prideful you are, the deeper and more, we'll say, steep your fall is because your pride needs to be destroyed. So we're going to see in Daniel chapter 3 today, we're going to see God is continuing to pursue him. It's a story you guys all are probably very familiar with, the fiery furnace, Daniel and his three friends. And we're going to unravel this text and we're going to see what God is doing in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. I want to get this thing straight in your head. Before King Nebuchadnezzar is going to worship the one true God in sincerity, he has to change his answer to four questions. Question number one, who is God? Four questions of a worldview. Who is God? Uh, Right now, when we get King Nebuchadnezzar, he is a Babylonian polytheistic pagan, which he believes that there are multiple gods, and he is one of them. That answer is going to have to change to a monotheistic God. His name is Yahweh, and I am going to worship him and him alone, and I am not a god. The second question he has to answer is, who am I? Now, right now, he believes that he is a god, he is good, he is in control, right? He has to change his answer to this. I am created by God, made in the image of God, am loved by God, but am broken, and I am a sinner, and I need God to save me. Could you imagine King Nebuchadnezzar or Kim Jong-un changing their story from personal God to I am a broken sinner made in the image of God and loved by God. The third question Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to answer correctly is how do God and I relate to each other? Right now, Nebuchadnezzar um, lives in somewhat fear of the gods, relates to God and communicates to gods through mediums, necromancers or different people, Chaldeans, astrologers, etc. It's going to have to change. He is going to now relate to God, the one true monotheistic God. If he's going to really convert, if he's really going to get saved, he is going to have to change the entire way he relates to God. And it brings us to the fourth question, which is, what is truth? Truth comes from the word of God revealed, at least the time he was written, uh, this is written, he lived, from the prophet's and the Torah, right? This is going to be his new authority and source of revelation. Now, do you see how big of a job it is to get evil, pagan, despot, polytheistic, 
King Nebuchadnezzar to be a follower of the one true God, right? Does God have a tall order in front of him? And the answer is yeah. And yet we're going to see this in your life. There are going to be people that you look at and you are going to say, they will never trust in Jesus. They are too far gone. If there's one thing I take out of this message, I'm just going to tell you on the front end, nobody is outside of God's ability and power to save, no matter how deep or no matter how dark. And behind the curtain, behind the scenes of the world's authorities, you and I have no idea what God is up to, who he has secretly placed in power, and who is actually bearing greater influence on the world's kings and the direction these kingdoms are taking. Isn't that cool? We're going to watch this behind the scenes. So Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, point number 1 in your notes. Nice try, Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. One verse, and I've already got at least four questions. Let's just go through them. Why is Nebuchadnezzar making a gold image? If you just pick up the Bible in Daniel chapter 3, this feels arbitrary. But do you guys remember what King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of in chapter 2? A huge image. Now let's go through this image. The head was made of gold, and it represented Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. The torso was made of silver. Uh, it represented the empire of the Medes and the Persians. We have the legs, which were made of uh, bronze, and then we have, finally have the uh, feet and whatnot and ankles and all that stuff. They're made out of iron. They represent um, Babylon, the Medo-Persian empire, the Greeks under Alexander the Great, ultimately Rome. And then finally, at the end of the vision, there's this big stone who is Jesus, and he flies to the sky, and he breaks and shreds up this entire statue, and then the wind blows all the remnant memories of the statue out, and the, the rock establishes his own kingdom and authority and love and righteousness and holiness over the entire world, right? So Nebuchadnezzar gets this dream and this interpretation from God. God humbles him and shows him that he is the God above all other gods. He tells Nebuchadnezzar the arc of history, what's going to be happening. Nebuchadnezzar apparently says this. I'm going to build the image, and I'm going to make the whole thing gold. This is why he would do this. Isn't that interesting? Now, there's a lot of things he's communicating here, and what is the image of? We don't actually know. I mean, I guess it could be Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't tell you exactly what it is. It could have been one of their chief gods. Whatever it is, it was clear that it was deeply personal to him. And the reason he did this, uh, made this image, is very simply, I believe this. He says, you know what? I'm not just going to be the head of gold, I'm going to be the entire thing. I am going to reign gloriously and victoriously forevermore. That's what he's communicating primarily, I believe, through making the entire statue out of gold. Where's Dura? Random place. It's actually the site, very near or right on, where the Tower of Babel was built. This great place of rebellion against God. And then I think this is one of the most interesting of these. How big is 60 cubits? 60 cubits is roughly 90 feet. Honestly, like 90 feet. I'm like, yeah, it's 90 feet. But when you're actually standing 90 feet up in the air and you got to look at how tall this is and to make an entire image, at least on the outside, we don't know if it was pure gold on the inside or if it was made out of wood and then covered in gold. But, man, this thing is huge. And this stood as a declaration and a statement to everybody who would ever see this thing. I am the everlasting king and no rock from heaven or otherwise, no Medo-Persian empire, uh, empire or group of vandals is going to take over this thing. I am the glorious king who lives forever and ever. Now, if God wants to woo and bring Nebuchadnezzar to himself, is he going to have to deal with his pride issue? What's the answer? 
Yes, verse 2. Wow, we're only in verse 2. Okay. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, don't forget two things. Daniel, at the end of Daniel chapter 2, has been promoted to be the governor. So is Daniel supposed to be here in front of this image? What is the answer? Yes. Also, I'm sorry, Daniel is the chief prefect. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were made uh, to be in high positions of authority, and they were all expected to be here. I'll just give you a little sneak peek. Daniel doesn't show up. We don't know why. Um, some people have surmised that Daniel's never brought up because he actually bowed the knee. I don't think that is possible given the book of Daniel and the arc of the book. But uh, most people surmise that Daniel doesn't show up here because Daniel is off doing some kind of important business as the king's number two and representing him. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taking center stage now, and uh, they have to be there because they're in leadership. We get verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Uh, Old Testament Hebrew uh, does not waste words. So when you start seeing the same phrase over and over and over again, what are they trying to communicate? Well, they're trying to emphasize something. Um, who set up this image? Nebuchadnezzar. From whose heart did this image emerge? Nebuchadnezzar. The author wants you to know, Daniel wants you to know, this whole thing is about Nebuchadnezzar. This image is about his pride. It's about his ego. In verse 4, it goes on. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you, talking to the, not the whole nation, just the leaders, the government officials, you are commanded. O peoples, nations, and languages. We're just going to pause. Here's why he says this. Because Nebuchadnezzar would go into your hometown or he would go into your state or go into your country and he would obliterate and kill and he would really do horrible things to the point where nobody loved Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Uh, this was not a good man. And so these people are forced to come and stand before this image. They're not all excited about this. He's talking to people who are not purely Babylonian by nature. These are different countries that he has overtaken, he has defeated, he has crushed them, and he's brought them into submission under his authority. Now he brings these people, probably begrudgingly, before this enormous statue, and here's what he says. You were commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down, listen to the script, like script's their worship for them, and worship the golden image that who set up? King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately, put that word immediately in your brain, hold on to it, shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Neb's character right now, Nebuchadnezzar's character, is on full display. He feels to me like an insecure little boy who needs his dad to tell him he loves him and to give him a big hug. I mean, this is just a broken adult man who has to literally take over people groups, bring them to himself, and force them to worship. This is pathetic at its worst. This is really sad. We learn a couple things I think about him right now is that when you lead out of fear, uh, some of you have leadership responsibilities, fear makes you go really slow, 
It makes you overly concerned with one person or a small group of people. Fear numbs your voice and leadership to the Holy Spirit. It reduces God's vision in your, in your life. It makes you not see what you could be or what God could do in your life. Fear cripples people who are in leadership. When Jesus says, come on, the fearful person says, hold on, I'll, let me catch my breath. I'll catch up to you, Jesus. Jesus is always a little bit farther ahead of you. Pride is the opposite. Pride makes you go too fast, makes you ignore most people. It makes you confuse your own voice for the voice of God. I've got these great ideas. It's amazing. We're going to do this. And when Jesus says, slow down, you say, no, Jesus, you don't understand how genius I am. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar is the worst of both of these. Nebuchadnezzar is like a little boy petrified with fear, overcompensating and exerting himself in pride. This is a pathetic, broken man. And God sees past his, past his pomp and circumstance. And he is going to woo this guy and draw him to himself. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, pipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages, they fell down and they worshiped the golden image that who set up? King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As I was reading this, something I think just struck me. It's pretty convicting for me. And it was just the reality of most people's worship. We're going to take Christians and non-Christians are going to clump everyone together as I say this. Most people's worship takes the path of least resistance. What is the least I can give? What is the least I can serve? What is the least I can do? What is the least gracious I can be? What is the most forgiving I need to be? Worship tends to take the path of least resistance. What will make my life the easiest? What won't cost me too much? And then this is where the Holy Spirit comes in and the Holy Spirit breaks down the selfishness of our worship. It makes us infinitely less concerned with, what do I look like? What do people think of me? I'm embarrassed. What am I going to eat for dinner later? <laughs> Unless you're hungry. But worship takes the path of least resistance, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in, and he starts cultivating something different. He starts working your heart so that you want to give God more glory and more glory. And you're less concerned with whether or not you're making much of yourself and your ease of life and your reputation. And as the Spirit gets a hold of the Christian's heart, our worship for God becomes more and more generous. It becomes more and more excited. We demand less and less and we give more and more because that's what the Holy Spirit fundamentally does. And we look at all of these people and what are they doing? The path of least resistance. What is the least I can do what is the least I can do and get away with it? But Daniel, we're going to see his friends have a very different approach to this. Verse 8 says this. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Who are the Chaldeans? You might be thinking, why are these people important? Where do they come from? We saw them in chapter 2. They're back in chapter 3. The Chaldeans are angry. Daniel humbled them and publicly embarrassed them as frauds in front of everybody in chapter 2. Number two, they have a bone to pick with Daniel and his friends because Daniel exposed them publicly as frauds in front of everybody and all their peers. 
but the Chaldeans are known as, of all of the king's court, of all of the king's advisors, they are the smartest, they are the wisest of the wise, they're the Harvard grads, the Princeton grads, the Yale grads. Everyone else went to state schools. These guys went to the best of the best of the best, okay? And so what we find here is that um, the same group of men, okay, the same group of Chaldeans, they're going to actually show up about 530 some odd years later, they're going to show up to Jesus, the actual Jesus who is going to be a toddler at the time, and they're going to show up because they have in these prophecies that a king was going to come. And it's interesting that the very wise men of the birth narratives of Jesus are the same group of people that go all the way back to the Chaldeans and the wise men of Babylon. Isn't this interesting? Before Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these wise men, they studied all of the best knowledge, all the smartest ideas, all the best of the best, the sciences, everything that the world had to offer in terms of knowledge. But you know what Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach brought to them? They brought to them the Torah, the Word of God, the prophecies, and these people for generations would continue to study these. And it's interesting, the same group of people who went after Daniel and his friends, God is going to bring to the very foot of Jesus Christ 500 some odd years later. Isn't that cool? God is always playing the long game with this stuff, which I love. Who are the Chaldeans? That's who they were. Let's go to verse 9. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Notice they're savvy. What do you say to a narcissist? Their own words. Literally just quote them. You got a narcissistic boss? Keep saying back to him what he says. Remember when you said, I loved when you said, narcissists love it. Verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These guys are such suck-ups. They are very frustrating to watch. I call them actually people. Okay, when I was a youth pastor, we had two students, and they were the actually kids. You'll know these people. Some of you were them, I'm sure. Um, I'm sitting there, and I'm teaching, whatever, and a kid raises his hand. He goes, mm, excuse me, actually, what happened was... And so here's what I would do. Um, I don't think I could get away with this like in any other setting than being a youth pastor. I'd be like, actually, um, and I would always call them out. I'm like, no, stop that. That's ugly and annoying. If you want to have a retort, that's fine. Be kind. Don't use the word actually. These are the actually people. They drive me nuts. Anyways, enough of that. Uh, verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Here's the deal. You're going to watch Nebuchadnezzar fly off the handle. This is what he does. He's an emotional wreck. He has no self-control. He overcompensates. He's just a big child, okay? But you might think he's mad right now at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't think he's actually mad at them. We're going to see it in the text. I think he likes them so much that he is angry that it's these guys, these are his favorite people. We're going to watch. The text actually gives us a clue into this very idea. He looks at them and he says, what are you doing? Look what happens. The king is going to go against his very orders. Remember, they were supposed to be cast into the fiery burning furnace immediately. He likes them. He's like, I don't want this to happen. Now, 
if you're ready. When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. I'll give you a second chance. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Can I tell you, this might just slip by you, one of my favorite parts of this is that the band had to be recued. He had to stop and be like, all right, all right, everybody get your positions again. We're going to start over. This is public, by the way. This isn't just like a private little thing. He literally reorchestrates this entire moment. He's like, all right, I want all the band to get ready. And on my cue, you play it. And when you play it, you guys get down. And if you don't, I'm going to destroy your entire lives and everybody in your family. Cool? All right, you guys ready? Good. What do you do? Then he goes on. Here's what he says. And who? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What? Are you kidding me? That is a fighting term right there. You want to throw down right now? I, I think maybe God in heaven would have let them all die. And as soon as Nebuchadnezzar said that, he's like, no. No, 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 no. And I feel like God just goes to work right now, and he is like not going to be putting up with this. And so what we have here is that, that what these three men are doing, you've got to catch this. This is treason. This may not make sense to you, but you've got to empathize with a polytheistic pagan worldview right now. Ready? Here's what happens. Uh, the gods are childlike, arbitrary, and random. And if they don't get their way, they pout like little children, and they throw rain and thunderstorms, and they make everything hard, and they get earthquakes. They're like big babies. Nebuchadnezzar is like a big baby because his gods are like big babies. And so you don't know what they're going to do. They're trite and arbitrary and random. So the Chaldeans, I mean, I bet you this was close to a conversation that they had. Can you, can you believe these three guys? If they don't ship up, then the gods, they're just going to make our lives really hard. They're going to come after us. They're going to come after our children. They are a threat to all of us. They are a threat to the nation. I mean, they're leaders. They're really high up. Like, we got to take care of these guys. They truly believe that if a few men don't bow down to this golden image, that the gods are going to be frustrated. And this is treason because they believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could plausibly incite these gods to take down Babylon or make their life really hard. So this is treason. Like This is not a small matter. And that's one of the reasons why Nebuchadnezzar is so over the top with this. Let's go to point number two in your notes. Jesus always wins. What is at stake and their answer. Here's the question. Remember this? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What, what, is, what is at stake? And, and it begs a question. The author, it's almost like Daniel knew generations would be reading this. And it's like he wants you to stop and say, what will you do? What would you do in this moment? Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to buckle? You're looking at a fiery furnace. Your children Maybe your grandchildren, your mom and your dad, and your home and your legacy, and everything you have ever built. What do you do? Because Nebuchadnezzar has the power to erase it from the face of this earth. And you just feel this pause. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Here's what they're saying. You already know the answer. You already know what our God is capable of. When your God's failed you, our God's came through. You know that your God is weak. So if you want to put our God to the test, that's your call. And if he wants to take you up on that test, good luck. They don't stand up for preferences. They don't stand up against non-Christians. They stand up for their line. They stand up for their personal holiness. There are some lines they will not cross 
and this is one of those lines. And the reason they had a line is because they predetermined before this moment where their line was. And this is one of the reasons why we have texts like this in Scripture. Because you don't know what the arc of human history for the next 50 years or 10 years or 5 years is going to be. Here's what I do know. Christians today, right now, are having to draw this line in the sand in a different way. And Christians, right now, are getting killed. Kids, dads, moms, grandmas, grandpas, today, right now. Because they're going to draw a line in the sand. And these evil people are going to come and erase their families and erase their homes and erase their legacies. And nobody will remember them until they get to heaven. And they will be done. They will be numbers and global stats of martyrs. That's all they're going to be. And they've made, they've made a decision. I imagine a world. I'm sitting with my, my buddies from church, right? And we're eating out. And somebody said, pulls a gun to our head and says, deny Jesus or die. I'm going to step up on behalf of all of them and say, shoot us all in the head. Done. No questions asked. We will not deny our God and our Lord, period. It's a line in the sand. It won't be drawn. Now, hopefully, somebody stronger than me will take the gun out of their hands and then, like, take them down. But if they don't, Scott, you need to be with me. Sound good? Okay, good. But if they don't, someone's got to stand up and say, we, we, we're in this. Our line is drawn in the sand. I actually wonder which of the three stood up and said it. Because all three didn't need to say it, just one of them. One of them needed to stand up and say, guys, I got it. We have no need to answer you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You want to take our God on? Have at it. We're good. Verse 18, he says this. Uh, verse 17, if, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, he's able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you. Do you hear the rebuke, by the way? I mean, these guys, in the face of their impending death, you got nothing to lose. Go bold, right? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is one of the greatest foundations of true worship. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is one of the most beautiful moments of worship because they stand and they say, my God is able but not required. Whether he does or does not, does not change what happens right here and right now. Take my life, you can't take my soul. Because this, this is a blip. Eternity is forever. Do whatever you have to do. And they had this line in the sand, and their line was drawn because of their confidence in a God who had never let them down. What's interesting is they say, whether we live, whether we die, we are going to worship the one true God, and that is it. Verse 20 goes on. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was so urgent, the furnace overheated, and the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, pay attention to this word, by the way, bound into the burning, fiery furnace. You cannot let this slip by. This was probably the most horrific thing they have ever seen in their life. They watched powerful men melt in the fire before their eyes. And as they walk in, not one part of them is burned, singed, or affected in any way. I don't care who you are. Humans are not made to watch that happen and be left unaffected. 
This is going to be a moment not just because they were saved, but because of what they have seen and they saw the judgment of God and the mercy of God together in one moment as crystal clear and as emotional as anything you can possibly imagine. Jesus, thank God, shows up in this moment. Verse 24 says this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste and he declared to his, declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Now, it's interesting, this is probably one of two types of furnaces. It's either an ore smelter or a brick kiln. Probably a brick kiln. These could get very large, very, very hot. Um, they could go way over 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, this is, a, this is a big, this is a hot, big thing. And you could actually see in the middle, you could see what's happening. And if they got hot enough, the flames would just start bursting out. This is not uncommon for something that could happen in this context. Nebuchadnezzar, he was astonished. He goes over, and then he says, how come there's four? Verse 25, he answered and said, I see four men. What are they? Unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, this is what I'm imagining. You're in the fire. You can walk anywhere you want. Jesus is there. What are you talking about? Hey, Jesus, I've had a lot of questions. Can you tell me the meaning of life? Can you tell me the, I'm really struggling. Is it free will or not? How can you be good and all this evil exists in the world? Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Like, I got a lot of questions for you. Like, when you spoke, like, six literal days, right? Like, we're on the same page because that's how it reads, right? Yeah, 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 we're good. Oh, hey, I'd love to talk to you. Like, when you were on the top of the mountain with Moses, like, what did you say to him? Was he really glowing? That's amazing. I mean, could you imagine the conversations? Who knows how long they're sitting in this furnace? All I know is they're unbound, talking freely. Like, this is a cool moment in history. And here is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He comes down, and he's just hanging out with them. I mean, this is a really cool scenario. Scenario. I've been so curious. This is honestly big thought, right? What are they talking about? Because I got a lot of questions for Jesus, and I know that I would take that moment to ask them. Like, Jesus, high five. Yeah, so good to see you. Don't worry, guys. It's going to be fine. Okay. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Watch this. Who did he not ask to come out of the fire? Right? Isn't that funny? He's like, okay, 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 we're okay. Me and that thing, we're not all right. But you guys, you guys can come out. God, you stay in there. And it's interesting the way he describes them because he describes them through the lens of a polytheistic Babylonian pagan. This is their vocabulary. So he, he, he talks about it uh, in a way that he sees reality. Now, is Jesus just um, some messenger of the gods? Is he like a son of God? No, he is God in the flesh and glorious. And whatever this was, Nebuchadnezzar knew that ain't purely human. There's something divine and otherworldly about that thing. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. In this moment... They are now asking the question that they cannot unask. What God can do this? And are my gods not as powerful as this God? It's interesting. Because of what God is doing with Nebuchadnezzar, all of the leaders of Babylon are watching this happen. And God is now not just dismantling and unraveling Nebuchadnezzar. He is dismantling and unraveling the entire leadership of the entire Babylonian empire. Isn't this cool? I can't tell you what happens to these men. I can't tell you who comes to Christ and who doesn't. But here's what I can tell you. 
that God pursues non-Christians in all walks of life from the most powerful men in the most evil places to the simple little person who nobody knows their name. God is a pursuer and he is hunting people down. I love this story. So what? Some things are only explainable with a God intervention. That's it. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. And when you have a moment in your life where the only logical explanation is God, you have two options. You face it or you stuff it. Most people, as we've talked about in the last weeks, are petrified of the reality of God. Because if God exists and has revealed himself, it demands on my life and my soul and my children from now for all of eternity. What most people do is they have these God moments and then they stuff it. I want to tell you that if God is giving you a divine moment, I doubt he would be hesitant to reveal his name and your purpose and his nature and his character. If he's going to go that far, I have a strong hunch he's going to tell you the rest. And in the word of God that we see that he has. And I've got to give it to Nebuchadnezzar. He's a despot, he's a tyrant, he's a jerk, he's a million things. But I respect him for one thing. When he has experiences like this, he does not stop it. He stares it in the face. He treats it uh, with respect. He owns it. He acknowledges it. One thing I appreciate about this guy, he has the guts and the courage that most people don't have to face reality and then figure out what does this mean for my life. You've got to give it to the guy. Now, the question is, does he fully repent and believe in the one monotheistic God? That's going to be the question. Let's watch verse 28 as it unravels. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. I love this. Publicly, he's declaring this. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. What's interesting, we're going to read and watch that Nebuchadnezzar is making some steps toward God. Better yet, God is dragging Nebuchadnezzar to himself. But Nebuchadnezzar is not fully there yet. Like you read this and you think to yourself, I think Nebuchadnezzar just got saved. But again, the authors of this are writing every word with intentionality. They want to show you the progress he's making. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 takes 10 steps forward, and then at the beginning of chapter 3 takes 9 steps back, right? And now he's going to take 10 steps forward, and we're going to see next week he's going to take 9 steps back. But you know what the equation adds up to? One step forward, (laughs) right? And this is what's so frustrating. I got to imagine if I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they see this incredible event, and then he proclaims the glory of God in a polytheistic world. You're like, oh, you haven't let go of your false religion yet. Come on, Nebuchadnezzar. Must drive them crazy. But here's the deal. God is not bringing Nebuchadnezzar to himself quickly for his own reasons. He's dismantling him one piece at a time. So in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar overcompensates again. He says this, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language, that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And I imagine at this point, he looks at all the Chaldeans, and he just looks at them, and he says, and their houses laid in ruins, right? So at this point, the Chaldeans have been humbled twice. They are not happy, and Nebuchadnezzar has probably had it up to here with them. And he's like, look, I'm going to put this debate to bed once and for all. If you ever say a single negative word about these guys again, you and your children and your homes and everything you ever know, ever know, we will, I will destroy right before your eyes. Done. Now, a little over the top, but hey, I appreciate it. I mean, if 
Kim Jong-un did this in North Korea, I'd be like, sweet, you know, don't bash the God of the Christians. He goes on and, and uh, he says, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Do you see this no other God? He's still posturing Jesus in a polytheistic worldview. And God has to dismantle this. God's not done with him yet. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, this is so dumb, peace be multiplied to you. The very man who shattered your entire lives, peace be to you. Like I imagine they roll their eyes when they read this. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now, now verse 3, the last verse we're going to look at here, this feels like the words of a true follower of God. But I want you to hear me. It's not yet. God isn't done with him. You'll heal, you, you will hear people give confessions of God and Jesus. You will hear them say things. And there are many people who are excited because God is measurably drawing them to himself. But they're not there yet. He's not there yet, but I appreciate it. Look at, look, at, look at the words. He means this. He believes this. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. At this point, I want him to go take the statue down, but he doesn't quite do that yet. So close, yet so far. But here's what you need to know. God is not done with Nebuchadnezzar yet. Next week, we're going to see the final chapter in Nebuchadnezzar's story in Daniel chapter 4. Feel free to read ahead. I'm going to close with four questions. What do I do with my friends who are religious and curious but just don't get it yet? Number one, praise God they have not suppressed their God instinct. You will find that when people, when their lives do not go the way they want, when their expectations are not met, uh, they start to deny slowly the idea and the concept of God. I mean, just take this for what it is. 99.9% of atheists are angry and disappointed, and their atheism is an overcompensation for the hurt and disappointment in their life, okay? Just put it out there. Uh, that is, by and large, the reality of atheism. And praise God that whatever has happened in their life, they have not suppressed their God conscience yet. They understand and still intuitively understand there's something bigger to this world than me. You have to remember that worldviews, who is God, who am I, how do God and I relate, and what is truth, the answers to these questions do not dismantle slowly. And the greater the pride, the longer the dismantling. And so the patience that God has with people like Nebuchadnezzar and Kim Jong-un, this is the kind of patience that we need to start thinking about. We need to be very patient because this is an arduous and long process to dismantle worldview. Question number two, how should I feel about the Kim Jong-un? In other words, what does this tell us about people who are far from God? Uh, patience. And remember this, Jesus draws in ways that you may never see. Never assume God is not at work. Never assume that God has not planted multiple seeds in some of the hardest hearts. And so you and I, in these interactions at work or home or friends or family or online or whatever, we are entering into many people's stories, and you never know where God is working. Would God publicly embarrass me to bring me to himself? Question number three. What is the answer? Yeah. Let me just, just tell you straight up. Uh, typically, God has to publicly humiliate people uh, in proportion to the height of their pride. So, like, the most prideful people need to be humbled publicly, by the way. This is just kind of a rule of the universe. So, if God really does have to drag you publicly through the mud, look in the mirror because there's probably a blind spot of pride that is controlling you massively. 
Here's an idea. Don't make God drag you through the mud to humble you. Humble yourself before the hand of the mighty God before he has to do it for you. Finally, question number four. Will God make me take a stand like this? My simple answer is I have no idea. Many of you in this room, majority of us in this room, uh, you've lived your entire life, some of you, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and it has been peaceful. Um, some of you know war. Some of you never had to go to war. You lived in America, and it has been a peaceful decade after decade after decade, by and large, where you've lived. You've never seen heartache like this. Nobody's ever tested you in these ways, and there is no shame in that. I would not wish this upon anybody. I would not wish testing and trials like this upon anybody. And some of you, God has not sought fit. He's blessed you, and he's just given you generally a life of peace and ease. Praise God. Worship him. The Lord gives whenever he wants. Uh, but I, I cannot even begin to surmise the trajectory and the arc of history over the next 20 years, 50 years, or 100 years. I don't know what is going on globally. All I know is things are tense. Things are weird. Things are happening in Europe and America and all over the world and Asia that are out of our control, and things are changing very quickly. But there may come a day when you either live here or someplace else and you begin to be pushed to the edge. And here's what I would tell you. Stories like this are here so that you can learn to draw your line in the sand now. This is where my line is. I will never sin or reject or deny Jesus Christ for anybody no matter what the cost. Those are lines that we draw on the, we draw on the sand now. And I can't tell you what's going to happen. My hope is that we live in peace until the day we die. But here's what I also know. Tragedy, hurt, pain, and suffering ignite passion, and they ignite worship unlike anything else. And that God has saw it fit to protect us in this room. Some of you, some of you have come from other countries, actually, and you're here because you're fleeing other things. But by and large, in this room, God has saw it fit to give you ease. But I'm telling you, if you go through tragedy, it will well up passion, and it will ignite a fire in you for God because ease corrupts us. It makes us fat, lazy, and we just sit back and enjoy and accrue. But... What tragedy and suffering and heartache and taking a stand does is it creates passion and separates you, and it is good for you. My prayer is that, honestly, that we don't have to die in the process, but that God would teach us to be bold and loving for the sake of Jesus in a, in a culture that is emergingly not really happy with what Christians believe. Maybe what you have to do is learn how to take a stand for what you believe in a way that is so loving and gracious that nobody could ever accuse you. I don't know what it is. But here's how I want to close my sermon, very simply. We're about to celebrate communion, and you and I, despite everything that's gone on in our life, right now, right here, right now, if you're here, you are not being killed. Today, I can't say this enough times, 1, 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 more people, kids, grandparents, pregnant women, are going to be killed today because they drew a line in the sand. And there is no shame that you are here and that I am here. There is no shame or guilt that our life is easy. What this should do for us is well up inside of us profound, profound gratitude. And it should also develop in us a resolve as our brothers and sisters go through hell and back all over the world that now we begin to draw our line in the sand. And these aren't imaginary lines because stuff like this, that's actually real. And stuff like this isn't that far away. Stuff like this is happening. And so we read this like it's oh thousands of years ago and thank God everything's fine. And I'm saying right now we need to begin to draw our lines in the sand. And we need to figure out what will, what will I do for Jesus? If pushed to the edge, what will I sacrifice? Would I really, would I really do it? Here's what I do know. Uh, I pray for peace. I pray that we can live all of our days in peace and love and joy and unity and everything is great. 
And yet at the same time, I know that my God is the king over every king and every kingdom. He is the king over every despot. He is the king over Syria and Kim Jong-un and China and Russia and Donald Trump. He is the king over all of these kings, and he shuffles and does whatever he wants. My job in this place and space and time and history is to be faithful and to serve. I will draw my line in the sand, and I will pray, and I will pray that every one of us, if it ever comes to that, would stand up for Jesus Christ, we would be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then we would watch our God go to work for us. And if he doesn't, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, just uh, acutely aware of, but even just to a small degree, what is happening. Um, so many names we'll never know or hear of again. So many families, so many people just erased from our records of history, but God, you know them, and you know their name, and you know their history, and you, you will not forget. God, I know there are martyrs in heaven, as Revelation says, and they say to you, how long, Lord, until you take vengeance and vindicate our name, and, and God, your response is at the right time. There's still more to go, and yet here we are, and I want to just say on behalf of every person in this room, Christian or not, thank you for being so good and so kind and so gracious. Thank you for the peace we've been able to live in. And yet, God, I know there are some here who have, who have seen very difficult things and challenges, who have left their countries and are here for protection. God, I want to thank you for the privilege you've given them to be here. <clears throat> but we know, Lord, where they come from, there's many still over there. So, God, as we come to the communion table, <clears throat> we are reminded that in this season, this, this peace that we have right here is just from you and by your hands. It is yours to give. It's yours to take away. But Lord, whatever you give us, we just say we love you. Lord, would you well up faithfulness in us? Would you well up courage in us? Would you well up true worship that your Holy Spirit forms in us that brings glory and honor to Jesus that isn't just preferential? God, as we come to the communion table, thank you above all of this Thank you for Jesus, because even if they take our life, we are eternally secure because of what you did for us. So God, fill us with gratitude, fill us with awe, fill us with thanksgiving, because you are a good God, and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.